My name is Angie. been doing this this strange activity for a long time now. And I'm still continually um, grateful for it, endlessly grateful, and continually surprised. Somebody said to me the other day, oh, you don't get... um, stiff shoulders and a hurting knees, do you? <laughs> and I had to say, yes, yes, I do. Um, and as we get older, of course, it gets harder in some ways. And yet, and yet. I've just come from a week-long uh, sitting up in the Madrone Forest of um, Mendocino County. A Sufi teacher opens her house to a group of us every year. We pitch our tents under the Madrone and fir trees and uh, sleep outside and then sit inside uh, and eat inside. So we have the best of both worlds. Very civilized meditation and um, completely connected with nature at the same time. Very, very beautiful experience. For the last few years, um, the person who came to cook for us uh, kept telling me, well, it's fine for you all to be doing this, nothing. But she said, I'm much too active for that. I couldn't do nothing, not for a minute. She said, I'm always running around. But Last year, she found people to cook breakfast for her a couple of times and came and joined us. And this year, she found people to cook breakfast for her every time and joined us for the whole morning, whole early morning sit. And then she came in to me about the fifth day and sat down and looked at me with big eyes. She said, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. I get it. (laughs) So she said next year, uh, somebody else would do the cooking. She was going to come and sit the whole time. (laughs) It's a kind of discovery that we make. And we make it in all kinds of different ways, uh, depending on where we're coming from. There's a group of women who meet in New Mexico with me every September. And one of the things that we do that's part of our our day, every day of the retreat, is to meet in the afternoon over tea and tell our way-seeking mind stories. The story of how we got here. It's a curious thing, isn't it? All the different things that came into our lives that affected us in in so many different ways. Sometimes terrifying losses, sometimes enormous encouragements, sometimes uh, incredible insights, even children having very deep insights that drive them to start looking for it.
I remember walking the streets of St. Louis County, the little town where I grew up, wondering if there was anybody in any of those houses who knew what it is. And I didn't know what it was either. I just knew there was something to know about. And isn't it strange that um, there aren't any words? In the end, there aren't any words for it. It's an activity and an experience. And our experiences are different because we're coming from different places. So there's no way to measure an achievement. There isn't any achievement, actually. It's starting over and over and over again. Shakyamuni Buddha was sitting um, until he died. In fact, he died in meditation. When I first started practicing, everybody was young and very idealistic and um, wanted to die sitting up in full lotus. That would be the best way to go. (laughs) And then one of the most idealistic ones of us was in a horrible accident at Yosemite where one of those, several of those big blocks of granite up on the face of a cliff had been pried loose by the frost at night and as people were hiking up the Yosemite Falls Trail several of those huge blocks came down and uh, killed some people and almost killed my friend and he woke up from the blow that hit him and broke his pelvis right on his back Uh, and he thought I'm dying I've got to get into full lotus (laughs) (laughs) And tried really hard before he fainted again. <laughs> so, and after that, we all thought, well, maybe, maybe that's a little bit too much. <laughs> but it's it's pointing to something that uh, is of great concern and interest to me, and that is, what is this? Um, Continuous practice. What is it not just to come and sit together with everyone, which is a wonderful, wonderful experience and so encouraging, so helpful. I think we ride on each other's waves. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very essential thing that we do together. Um, but then we stand up hitch ourselves together and go out into the world Um, what is our practice then how do we do this as a life I often think of the Dalai Lama he always says to introduce himself, I'm just a simple monk. And it always makes me think, well, if he's a simple monk, what are the rest of us? It's a wonderful model for us. He maintains his simplicity, his plainness, 
his ordinariness, and practices a lot. He gets up early in the morning and sits a lot before he starts all the business of his day and has a foundation for his activity. It's a very important point. It's one thing to be encouraged by each other, but it's another thing to uh, encourage ourselves. If it gets to be discipline, if that uh, judgmental character inside of us, the second grade teacher or the the rude parent or whoever it is that we carry around is always telling us what to do and what not to do. If that one gets involved, it's very hard to take this practice seriously. Because then it's shaking a finger and saying, well, you've got to do it. You said you were going to do it, and it's good for you, so you should do it. And then my reaction is always to dig in my heels and say, you can't make me. (laughs) There's no way. (laughs) Then we become two people. Uh, And every time we split in that way, and there are lots of ways that we split, then there's all this tension. We're trying very hard to... uh, overcome one side of ourselves with the other side. And it doesn't work. So to be single, to be single-minded, single-hearted, and to encourage ourselves at the same time, to extend our practice uh, into every moment of our life, Sometimes we think when we talk about mindfulness practice that that means um, being terribly self-conscious about absolutely everything that we do. Now I'm slicing the onion. Now I am driving the car. Uh, But it gets silly, doesn't it? It doesn't work that way. It means being completely present and awake in each moment to whatever's going on. And That's a lot, including all of our memories, all of our projections into the future. They're all, it's all happening at the same time. And the the point is not to be caught by any of it, not to get stuck in any of it and think, well, this is it. Uh, If I'm, I am driving the car and uh, something happens in the back seat to one of the children, then something has to change and change quickly in order to take care of the situation. So it's more about flexibility and openness. And when we get scared, and I think most of us are scared a lot of the time, or have been, that our fear closes us up and keeps us holding on to something that will make us feel more secure. Sometimes I think we're each in a little castle and we're waving across the parapets to each other. Oh, hello, hello. Um, 
And sitting brings us back down to the ground and opens us up so we can go out into the garden and meet each other. Having sat for a week, I know how difficult this is to do. The first few days are always so difficult. And I know how rewarding it is as well. By the end of a, of a week-long sit, uh, it's just all reward, usually. And yet, it's uh, nothing at all. We get up and we go on, just as we do tonight. So that's my, those are my words of encouragement. hope you enjoy this. Um, in Zen we say uh, sitting meditation is the gateway to, to joy. Peace and joy. Are there questions? Discussion? We're supposed to have a discussion, I know. (laughs) Yes? Have you ever, um, if you have trouble meditating or finding time to meditate, have have you ever, have you heard of people that actually perhaps get together, call a friend up, and somehow arrange to sit together with someone else. Yeah. Yeah, very often. Yeah. It helps a lot. Because then you can keep each other honest about it, right? Yeah. Do you do that? No, I've never done it. That's why I kind of want to ask, you know, yeah. asking, you know, if it's, if it's something that's done, if it's something that's encouraged or... Uh, Absolutely. It's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Do you ever uh, meditate laying down? I have. And it certainly is uh, one of the things that uh, sometimes we have to do. What was If I'd ever meditated lying down. You know, they say in Buddhism that we practice sitting, standing, lying, uh, all the different postures, walking. Um, Lying down is the most difficult one. Uh, looks like it would be the easiest, just flop down, but it's very hard to stay awake. And Buddha means awake. So the whole point of this is to wake up. So lo- doing lying meditation takes a lot of, of attention, a lot of... It helps if you uh, lie with your knees up so that when they begin to flop... Um, you wake up for one thing 
And also, your body, when it's lying straight out, thinks it's time to sleep because it's been trained that way. So if you put your knees up, it doesn't think about sleeping so much. Not, near, not as much, anyway. And you get used to it. The friend who, who, who broke his pelvis actually was in the hospital for a couple of months and worked and worked at the lying down meditation and, and did pretty well with it by the time he was finished. So it's, it's a good thing to know how to do. I never included at retreats. Well, yeah. And standing meditation, too. My teacher, Comancino, teaches standing meditation, which is also very difficult. Boy, standing for long periods of time is a challenge. Uh, But that's another one. Can you keep your arms at the side? Uh, well, sometimes you can connect it here. It's a more powerful sit if you can connect it with your your belly, and your hands and your belly, or you can you can do it out this way, and, and try both. I would say in sitting also try both because the experience is so different this way and this way. Um, your, your whole, the whole energy in your body changes, I think, the flow of it. I, I was um, at Jikoji. Maybe some of you know about Jikoji, the retreat center up on Skyline. And uh, we invited a, uh, an expert from Stanford University to come up and advise us about uh, wheelchair access and, and all of that kind of thing. And the man who came was in a wheelchair. He was the expert. <laughs> Young guy, really wonderful guy. And he wheeled himself up and down over all those bumpy, sort of impossible places. He did very well. And we, then we had a discussion afterwards, and he glared at me at one point, and he said, you all are the temporarily abled. He said, I may be disabled, but you are temporarily abled. And who knows when some, one, any one of you would need this thing that we're trying to uh, put in. So I've always thought learning to sit in a chair, which I never thought I would be doing, uh, lying down, all of those. It's wonderful to be able to sit on the floor, but it's not the be-all and end-all at all. How do you find a teacher? I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes you have to look for a long time. There are lots of teachers, especially now. There are lots of them, Um, and all different flavors. It's it's you know there's vipassana and there's Zen and there's three or four different kinds of Tibetan. and every teacher within his or her tradition has his or her own way of doing it. And some of them resonate with you and some of them turn you off completely. 
So it's really, a, a, you, you have to follow your heart and your belly, you know, and let them tell you what the right place is. And they say that, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And when the teacher is ready, the student appears. So it's a kind of mutual thing that happens. A teacher is a funny word, actually. It isn't really like in a classroom where the teacher has this whole bundle of knowledge that then is getting is imparted to the student. It's it's not exactly like that. It's more that uh, well, we say in Zen, two Buddhas meet, so that it's a recognition, a process of recognition, self-recognition recognizing it in ourself and then recognizing it in our teacher and then recognizing it in the world so that Buddha truly is everywhere. So the teacher is is a, a kind of, I don't know what you would call it, but it isn't teacher with a capital T. So keep looking. It's worth it. What is the role of a teacher and a student in learning meditation? Well, you can't really teach meditation. I'm also a poet and do poetry workshops sometimes. And it's exactly the same with poetry, with writing. You can't teach it. But everybody has it in them. And if you provide a safe place for them so that they can sit down and quietly begin to discover themselves, that's what it's like. And then you try to find words for it. That's the hardest part for the the encourager, uh, to find ways of talking about the untalkaboutable, about what's inside each of us that empowers us and that we are longing to express and to be fully, to fulfill. So it's more like that. Thank you. Yeah. Yes? The um, question about finding a teacher was a, a very good one, because I too... I've often wondered about that. The the only teachers that are accessible are the, the speakers at the uh, various meditations that I go to. That, that just seemed to be the only access. Yes. But I, I would assume that it, that if you approach um, someone for uh, speaking, perhaps I don't know. I, I guess I'm kind of asking is that. that are the, are the the teachers that speak in meditation are they usually available or is that what they do? That's what they do. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. They're waiting for that meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, just have to ask. Or just be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people ask formally. You know, may I be your student? And mm-hmm. but often people just keep showing up. And then it just is sort. It's much more natural that way, I think. 
But like everything else, finding a teacher happens in totally different ways for different people. I found my teacher in a very odd way. Uh, my husband and I, when we first moved to California 40 years ago, um, got the map out of Northern California and just started looking for little interesting roads to take. And uh, one of the roads had Tassajara at the end of it. It said Tassajara, and it was a dirt road. And we thought, ah, oh, that'll be cool. We'll take this little road. And we tried it twice. And it was once it was snowed in, once there was a mudslide, and the third time we made it. And that, that third time, they had just opened up at their first guest season after having their first monks training winter season. So that there, were, there was Suzuki Roshi. There were all these young, idealistic um, Americans with shaved heads trying to be monks for the first time. And they had hardly any guests. So when we showed up, they said, oh, come in, come in. We'll be so happy to have you as our guest. So we did, and we loved it. We loved the hot baths. We loved the food. We just loved the whole way that it felt. And learned to sit. They pulled us into the Zendo and said, oh, you've got to learn how to do this. So, so we sat down and learned how to sit. And I loved it. And we went back every summer for three summers after that and brought our friends and mostly just hung out at the Narrows and uh, soaked in in the hot baths. And as we were checking out, probably the fourth time, the fourth summer that we were there, somebody said, do you know that there's a Zen master living two miles from your house? And I said, no. (laughs) So he told me his name is Coben Chino. And as we drove up that long dirt road, I kept thinking, did he say Coben Chino or Chino Coben? What was that? What did he say? But he gave me a phone number. And it took me a long time to get up enough courage to call it because I thought I wasn't good enough to go into a real zendo and meet a real teacher without just being a guest far back in the corner of a room. But that was how I began, because when I finally did go, it was a little zendo made out of somebody's garage, and it was called haiku zendo because it only had room for 17 cushions, like the 17 (laughs) syllables in the haiku poem. And there was this Japanese man, and I just felt my goose was cooked. That's where I needed to be. And... uh, that's where I am still, though Heiko Zendo doesn't exist anymore, and many, many things have changes, changed in the interim. But he's still my teacher. He's still a big part of my life, though I rarely see him anymore. Oh, that's like the teacher question, isn't it? Uh, take some test or something? No, no, no. Though <laughs> so it sounds like it, and people sometimes think think it that way. And uh, often Zen teachers are called Roshi, which uh, in Japan a student will call a teacher when they they've gotten very close and really understand each other very well. 
It's a, a way that you acknowledge uh, your gratitude to your teacher by calling him Roshi and your deep, deep respect for for him or her. Uh, but in America, it's just like saying reverend. It does. It just means that that the teacher has become higher in the hierarchy or something like that, uh, more important, more practiced maybe. But truly, length of time doesn't necessarily mean profundity or ability. So it's hard to know. You can't really say. You have to feel for yourself. Buddha always said, don't ever take anything that anybody says uh, on their word. Always always have, be sure that it resonates as true to you. And that's true. You know, anybody can call himself a master. There was one who used to put out big ads in Yoga Journal. What was he called? Zen Master? I've forgotten, but he charged something like $1,500 for a weekend's retreat and he guaranteed enlightenment <laughs> at the end of it. <laughs> so... He also, in his credentials, he listed all his past lives. Yes, that's right. That's right. All his past lives. All very important ones, too, of course. (laughs) So does it come from the student to the teacher? Does it just start calling him master? Or is it the person that decides? I mean, does the word... It doesn't. It doesn't. There are traditions in in Zen Buddhism about tr- uh, transmission. They call it, uh, and it's turned into a kind of almost political thing. Not quite, but though it can be used that way, where you you're trained in a certain way. You're trained for so many years, and first you. Um, well, you wear the right clothes for it, and you keep changing clothes as you get higher. In the, so you start out with a black little bib, and then you get a uh, another uh, a, a blue one. You start out with here, and then a black one, and then if you get to be higher and higher, then you get a brown one, um, and you get more and more responsibility, uh, mostly in taking care of the institution. So a lot of those hierarchies are created in order to to maintain an institution because once you own a building and people are living there somebody has to do the cooking somebody has to make the schedules all those things so they need students and they need to create a situation where students can contribute to the ongoing institution so a great deal of that uh, comes from that and then of course they need teachers and so they empower teachers through transmission in a secret midnight ceremony. Um, My teacher doesn't do that. My teacher is a renegade in the Zen tradition, so I'm telling you from the outside. uh, He he talks about transmission happening all the time with everything. Every blade of grass that we meet is a transmission from the blade of grass to us and from us to the blade of grass. It's our life. It's how we live. Our, our mind is our world. And, and so it doesn't mean the same thing. 
And mastery doesn't mean the same thing in my, in my tradition with COVID. two sides to it, aren't there? They're both true. They're both true. Yes. Lots of people do. The teacher of this group is a transmitted teacher in the Zen tradition and also an acknowledged teacher in the Vipassana tradition. And uh, there are a good many people at San Francisco Zen Center who go to Spirit Rock every year for their uh, hit of Vipassana, (laughs) you could say. Uh, I have several friends who are seriously studying Vipassana after having spent many years in Zen. And and the other way around. I know several people who are doing it the other way around. People in in the San Jose group where I sit uh, who studied Vipassana for years and are now uh, broadening their scope, I guess, or or changing their, their focus and studying Zen. It's, it's the same thing. The emphasis is different in the two practices, but, the, but it's the same Buddhist practice. Uh, all the teachings are the same, and we study all those teachings in Zen, the same ones that Vipassana people study. Yes? How, how are they different? Well, um... Zen starts out with what is called shikantaza, which means only just sitting. So you sit with no real instruction at all except to be there and be present, to be here and be present. Um, It means one-pointed sitting. Uh, the ta is like hitting the, the arrow, hitting, hitting the bullseye. Uh, shikan means only just. So only just being right here, that still point that we are. Uh, and za means sitting. So um, the emphasis in Zen is on posture because... Um, in order to be truly present, it's very important to have a, a, a really straight spine and a, and a head that's tucked so that the spine stays straight. Um, it's very hard to persuade people of that. And in Vipassana, there's not much emphasis on posture at all. Uh, it's, it's always amazing to me the difference between how Vipassana people arrange themselves for a sit and the Zen people because Zen is so much more uh, austere it looks like but it's not austerity so much as just 
just being completely present and completely open to one's breathing. Uh, and just to be there over and over. And vipassana, there are lots of helps to that. Um, ways of, of reminding oneself where one is. Not only watching one's thoughts, which we do in Zen, uh, they, they keep going, they're always there. All those movies and all those tapes just go on and on. But in Zen, we just let them go. And in vipassana, often you, you begin at least by naming them. Say uh, now I, you know, hearing the hearing the sounds out there, or thinking about Joe Blow, or uh, wondering what I'm going to have for dinner. Uh, all the things that all the nonsense that passes through. It's very helpful because it keeps us present. We don't do that in Zen, uh, so that's one of the differences. Vipassana people have a different schedule. Uh, you sit longer and walk longer than we do. Uh, there are a lot of sort of cultural differences, I would say. But the basic understanding is Buddha's teaching. And it's the same teaching. And the same understanding of the teaching, too. So you can easily go from one to the other without any problem. As we do. Is <laughs> the breath always felt in the same place in Zen Coben always said it took, takes about 25 years to learn how to breathe properly in Zen. Um, I don't know. I'm not even sure it's learning how to breathe, but just allowing ourselves the freedom to really breathe as we as the breath wants to breathe itself. Yeah. Yeah. You have those options. Um, those are concentration practices. They help to keep oneself present, um, but they're not emphasized at all, unless your your mind is very very scattered. If you're really upset, it's tremendously helpful just to let the breath uh, carry the attention. But the ultimate is to uh, be breathed. Breath is a very interesting thing. It's the interface between our conscious control and our unconscious um, surrender. Uh, We can say, I'm not going to breathe anymore, ever, and hold our breath and turn blue and fall down and start to breathe. So it's a very interesting thing, a very deep thing, actually, to be present for uh, and, and to study. So ultimately, being breathed is the whole thing breathing itself. Uh, often we say in Zen to keep your belly soft. And we rest, we have this cosmic mudra like this uh, that rests right below the belly button so that uh, you actually feel the breathing in your hand if, if your belly is soft. Often it, it ends up being up here, a tight, sort of fearful breath up in the top of the, of the lungs. Uh, and sometimes it's at the here and here, but the middle part is missing. It's very interesting to study the breath. 
because you can breathe this part and this part, but leave this part out. So to get it all coordinated takes a lot of of, um, attention and interest to see how it actually works. It's our body. We think of the practice sometimes as a practice of the mind, but actually it's much more physical. It's, It's this incarnation of us. It's how to be this piece of meat that we are. (laughs) Be it wisely. Live the wisdom of it. Well, it's about time to sit. Aren't we supposed to sit for the last 15 minutes? Well, let's, let's do that then.